Hi there, and welcome to the Wayback Music Machine podcast, the show that takes a lighthearted look at the week that was in rock and roll history. I'm Tony Stewart. I'm Aaron Badgley. And Aaron, where are we headed on this week's rock and roll road trip? We're going all over the place, Tony. You know, the last few trips we've been in kind of one area, but this time we're doing New York. I think we're doing London, um, maybe some Nashville. What do you think? Yeah, and and a stop in Los Angeles, too. So we really are all over the place. But uh, what do you say we go to New York City first and uh, kick this thing off? Let's do it. So fasten your seatbelt, folks, because this is episode 63. So let's get started. We are in New York City. It's July the 25th, 1969, and we are at a famous venue, the Fillmore East. And what's going on, Aaron? It's the debut of arguably the first super band of all time. Would you would you consider these guys a super band? Oh, I think you'd have to, looking at the pedigree of where they came from. Absolutely. So Neil Young appears with Crosby, Stills, and Nash for the first time at the Fillmore East in New York. Hey, as a side trip... Do you know who the last person to perform at the Fillmore East was? Okay, let me guess. If it's, was it Paul McCartney or Ringo Starr? You're so close. <laughs> <laughs> it was Frank Zappa. Oh, but okay. John Lennon. John Lennon joined him on stage for the final encore. Oh, what year was that? Seventy-two. That's amazing. Oh, so that yeah. only three three years after this story. Wow. Yeah, yeah. But back to back to Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. I mean, first of all, I have a question. Are you a fan? Absolutely. I mean, I was a fan before Neil Young joined, but even more of a fan afterwards. I think some of their best work came when he came on board, don't you? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think that um, he brought an edge to the music. I, I, I think that's the best word I can use. I mean, he also brought strong melodies too. I mean, he brings every... I love Neil Young. Well, so do I. And he's such a good songwriter that he brought that element to the band as well, right? You remember when they did... Uh, Ohio, right? I mean, that was that was all Neil Young, that song. It was a reaction song and uh, one of their great songs. I think, I think, um, and they did, they did that in a relatively short time too, if I'm not mistaken. Oh yeah, it was, it, he wrote that in a matter of minutes uh, from what yeah. I understand. Yeah. yeah. But look at the pedigree, right? Of these guys. You know, David well, I'm just going to do, see, we're, we're, we're mind melting. I was going to just do that. Time. Just to tell, where, where are these guys from? Well, let's take a look first. David Crosby, right? He uh, he was in the Birds, and he was asked to leave the Birds. Well, now asked <laughs> to leave the Birds. That's not a good sign. But anyway, asked to leave the Birds in 1967. Stephen Stills was in Buffalo Springfield. Graham Nash was in the Hollies. Hollies are are big enough names on their own. And by 1969, early on, they had signed with Atlantic Records. And their first album, of course, was called Crosby, Stills, and Nash. But it really, I agree with you, it really wasn't until Neil Young came on board that they were a true, true super group. I I was surprised when I was doing the research that they tried to get Stevie Winwood to be their, <laughs> to be their keyboard player. That would yeah, have been awesome. It would have been, been awesome. awesome. He's a great player. I mean, Steve, I'm a Steve Winwood fan, actually, so... I am as well. I think he's brilliant. And I think that would have been just, can you imagine Stevie Winwood with these four guys? Yeah, that would have been, oh, it would have gone in a totally different direction, right? 
Yeah, but so cool, right? But he was with Blind Faith at the time, so he he couldn't do it. So that's why they brought in Neil Young, believe it or not, to play keyboards. I mean, uh, he's a guitarist, but he also plays keyboards. So what what a what a stroke of luck, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was one of those happy coincidences, right? That I mean, not to knock Steve Winwood, but I think Neil Young was was the better choice, and and what a great career they had together, but contentious right i mean they they had problems getting along am i is that an understatement or what <laughs> well they they did have struggles staying together and if you look at their history they would do an album be apart for 10 years or whatever and then get back together again but it was interesting that that, that neil young basically had a contract saying that he'll come into the band but he wants to maintain a freedom with his band, Crazy Horse. And yeah. I, I can't think of any time that was ever done, you know? No. And, he, and I mean, look at the work during that time that he produced with Crazy Horse, right? So some iconic albums. But yeah, so that that right there is a testament to his, uh, his power as an artist that he could negotiate that with a group, especially a super group like that. Like you say, maybe the first super group, right? Well, yeah. And I mean, you're, you're, not, you're dealing with some pretty serious egos, sorry, it's, too. And I, I have a question for you. Stephen Stills got turned down by another famous band. Do you know who it was? Now, this one I'm not sure about, but I have a feeling that we're probably going to be ringing the bell, aren't we? <laughs> Get that bell ready. He was supposed to be in the Monkees. Seriously? Yeah. And you know why they turned him down? He wasn't willing to do a year of orthodontic work because his teeth, <laughs> his teeth were really bad, and they wanted four good-looking guys, and and they kind of looked at his teeth and went, "He's going to scare little kids," and um, oh, so he suggested goodness. Peter Tork because he was really good friends with Peter Tork from from Greenwich Village, and Peter Tork had good teeth, obviously. He did, and he could play the banjo. <laughs> now you know I'm going to piss off our British fans, but. Uh, if the monkeys were a British band, I don't think the teeth would have been a problem to you. <laughs> <laughs> no, look at the royal family. <laughs> I'm going to leave that in. I think. <laughs> yeah, let's see. Let's see what kind of response we get on that one. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, but you, you asked a question earlier. I mean, these guys were never together long enough to kind of break up although they finally broke up in 2000 after their <laughs> <laughs> well apparently um neil young and david crosby are not on speaking terms at all yeah which i would have thought uh because weren't, weren't there some issues between Stephen stills and neil young in the first place there's issues between Stephen stills and just pick a name <laughs> yeah yeah doesn't play nice with others eh? he has a reputation i mean talented guy you know, but he didn't take his own advice to love the one you're with. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, it, it, it has been a soap opera, no doubt, but they produce some great songs. I mean, Woodstock, Teach Your Children Well. We already mentioned Ohio, Our House, American Dream. And like you said, didn't break up until 2000. Their last album together was in 1999, right? It was called Looking Forward. That <laughs> really is Really bad title. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They got Y2K'd by the look of it, you know? Yeah, they should have thought that one through. <laughs> so what did you, uh, I, I see you've got a little CanCon going on here. You picked uh, the top five Canadian singles on Billboard. So uh, what was on the top five? Well, out of out of respect to Mr. Neil Young, you yeah. know, 
fine Canadian boy. Number five, I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, I have all five of these singles. Yeah. Well, they're great. It's a great chart. I know there's one band you particularly love, and there's one that people kind of think I love. Um, number five was Oliver, Good Morning, Starshine. Mm-hmm. Uh, number four, Andy Kim from Montreal, Baby, I'm a Love You. Or maybe I'm, yeah, baby, I'm a love you. Uh, number three, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Spinning Wheels. I love that song. Yeah, Spinning Wheel is such a great song. Fantastic. I always had a nest to that. It's Spinning Wheel, right? Yeah, I know. It's just Spinning Wheel. Yep. Yep. Number two is one of my all-time favorite songs, Zagger and Evans, in the year 2525. I don't know that one, so. It's a classic, and it actually made number one, and they destroyed their career because the song they released after this one is a song called Mr. Turnkey which was about a child molester who kills himself in prison by crucifying himself against the wall. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> I, I, I can't make this up, Tony. <laughs> no, that stuff is the truth is stranger than fiction. But you got to wonder about the, the band meeting when they introduced that song. Eh? Like, can you, can, you, can you picture the record company? Um, <laughs> listen, chops, I'm thinking. <laughs> but you want like and remember, well, the record company, you think, could have vetoed that or something? I mean, I don't know. That's bizarre. I, 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 right? Like, can you just, just, someone has to go, hang on a second, hang on, hang on. No. <laughs> Maybe an album <laughs> cut. Fair enough. But, you know, um, yeah, like we're not talking Ray Charles wanting to do a country album here. <laughs> no, no, we're talking about a child offender killing himself exactly. through crucifixion. I, I give it up. And number one is a song that's connected to our, our Memphis to Mersey. Um, story. It really is. It's called The Ballad of John and Yoko by the Beatles, a song that only made it to number eight in the, Our Neighbors of the U.S. because they banned it because of the chorus, right? Yeah. Where, Christ, where they said, you know it ain't easy. Yeah, yeah. And uh, didn't did the BBC ban it as well for a while or not? It's a hell-freezing-over moment, but no, the BBC did not ban The Ballad of John and Yoko. Now, I find that unbelievable. But our friends in the States decided that it wasn't worthy of airplay. That is so interesting. Well, it's no, I'll be home for Christmas, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I give up, Tony. Okay. (laughs) Now, speaking of the BBC, though, let's segue into our next segment. Let's head over. Sounds good. Yeah, let's head over to July 29th, 1956. And we are going to go to London. So we'll be right back. Well, it's one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready, and... Go, cat, go, because we are talking about <laughs> Carl Perkins. We're not talking about Elvis here, although Elvis... No, we're talking her. Carl. Carl Perkins. Man, oh man. Love that man. Love his shoes. Yes, he was on the UK singles chart with his debut. Debut. Did I say debut? I Debut. You did. <laughs> <laughs> debut hit Blue Suede Shoes, but... There's an interesting story behind this, isn't there? It was uh, it was planted in his head by none other than Johnny Cash. So what was going on there? Well, you know, Cash told Perkins about a, a an African American airman whom he had met when serving in the military in Germany, and he referred to his military regulation air shoes, air shoes as blue suede shoes. And Cash said, "Hey, Carl, that might make a good title," you know. Yeah, and uh, and it's iconic, that song. And, of course, 
not very many people, I think, know Carl Perkins' version. You know, Elvis Presley, of course, made that song his own. And once you may, even if you're a Carl Perkins fan, it's impossible to deny that Elvis Presley just might be uh, the greatest interpreter of song in pop music history, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think I think you you know he's covered lots of songs that have are, are well tons of songs, and he had a way of tapping into something that wasn't necessarily there in the original. He would hear something, I think Elvis would hear something in the song, and arrange it in such a way that it just it just burst onto the scene, you know. Yeah, and Carl Perkins, his career was was really looking promising, and he was he was on the way to Ed Sullivan, was he not? When he when the car crash happened. Yep, and, and Elvis filled in for him. Yeah, and uh, of course, Carl Perkins, his brother, died, and he was just never the same after that. And and how could you be, right? Do you know who owns the Carl Perkins catalog now? Now, I am guessing that McCartney must, right? <laughs> That's a good guess. <laughs> oh, I'm going to ring the, the bell for myself right now, so... Twice, bring it twice. <laughs> yeah, McCartney's uh, music publishing. He owns the Buddy Holly catalog. He owns Carl Perkins, and he owns uh, tons of other stuff. But he would buy the music he loved and wanted to make sure it's taken care of. And he's really done a good job, I think, with uh, safeguarding the songs, you know? Well, I, I agree with you. I think it's really important that you've got somebody, unlike that story that we talked about last week with Taylor Swift, you know, with Scooter right, Braun. right. Uh, Here's Paul McCartney, who is interested in stewardship, right? He is interested in being a good steward with this music and making sure that it's respected and preserved. Uh, good for him. So I have a question. And, and I know we talked about Elvis being a great interpreter of song and all that, but do you have a favorite version? Is it, which one do you prefer, honestly? Honestly, I prefer Elvis's version. Uh, I just do. I, the way that he, he adds a little bit of an edge to it. Um, Carl Perkins' version is fantastic. It's a little more straight ahead, but Elvis, you know, Elvis's version is like a great dessert at the end of a fantastic meal. Carl Perkins' version is a fantastic meal. Elvis Presley just adds that little extra thing that makes it last forever. Makes sense? That's pretty poetic. That's so poetic. Oh, thank <laughs> that's you. Really, that's very poetic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I think. You know, and, and the two, the opening is what, what gives it away. Elvis's opening to the song is very different than Carl's. Yeah, it has an edge to it. And how do you compare? Like we talked about this before. He just, yeah. once Elvis got his hands on a song, that was it. Uh, it didn't matter how talented you were, Elvis's version. There was just something about the way that he interpreted songs. You know, look, I've been listening to a lot of uh, rehearsal footage from his Vegas days. Mm -hmm. And yeah. look what he did with songs like Bridge Over Troubled Water. I would argue that I like his version at least as much as, as the Simon and Garfunkel version, to be honest. Same with Sweet Caroline. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I, it is a great version. And I would bet that Neil Diamond would say the same thing. I'll tell you the other song that, that Elvis covered, and I think is as good as the original, if not better, is Early Morning Rain. Oh, yeah. He does a fantastic job. He does that. a fantastic job of that song. Fantastic. Really good job of that song. There's an emotion in his voice, and it's like, it's really yearning, you know? Yeah. Now, you know, there's the, the iconic, uh, the Million Dollar Quartet, right? Can you imagine being in the room? You've got Carl Perkins, Elvis Presley, Johnny Cash, and um, piano guy, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis. Jerry Lee. Jerry Lewis, yep. yeah. 
imagine being in the room with when that was going on. Well, Sam Phillips was, and he recorded a lot of it. So very prescient of him. But you know, you wouldn't at the time, did anyone know what they had in their, like, I know that sounds like a stupid question, but you know, now we can look back on it and kind of go, oh my gosh. But at the time, did they understand what this was happening? You know? Yeah. I think maybe Phillips did. Sam Phillips did. He had an inkling, but it probably not to what extent that it would, mm-hmm. but one of those fortuitous, happy accidents that he turned on the tape recorder and captured all that. But you know what I always found interesting is that for a big chunk of it, it's Elvis Presley at the piano. You know, and people forget that, that guy could play a piano. He could play a guitar as well. And um, it's, it's I, I have the original album that came out in the 70s and it's fantastic. I love the, I know since then they put out more and more material from it, but it's a great album to just kind of listen to, you know? Oh, it's fantastic. And the, and the track list, those are great songs and little snippets here and there of stuff, you know, what that they can remember in some cases, not remembering all the lyrics, but oh, yeah, what a wonderful recording. And the joking around, it's fantastic. It just sounds like friends together at a piano. It would be like if I was with you, and I can't sing though, but and you're playing the piano and we're just doing songs we love. No, absolutely. And I, uh, to be a fly in the wall in the room on that day, that would have been something else. Now, what did you pick for your uh, chart here though? Well, I thought I'd go through the U.S. top five pop albums okay. just because there's someone in the top five that, again, it's connected, right? Soundtracks, man. Number five, soundtrack to Carousel. Number four, Frank Sinatra's Songs for Swingin' Lovers. Which was huge. Oh, stayed on the charts for a couple of years. Uh, Elvis Presley, Elvis Presley. Yeah, the, like the, the iconic cover that everybody uh, loved to imitate. Yep. Classic. Harry Belafonte, Calypso, which literally stayed number one for a year. Massive album. Massive. And number one, The Rain in Spain. Stays mainly on the plane. My Fair Lady, the original cast. Yeah, what was it with, uh, you know, in the 50s and 60s, eh? musical theater albums were always on the charts. Did you ever hear the controversy with My Fair Lady? No, what what was the controversy? So on the stage, it was Rex Harrison and Audrey Hepburn, right? Yeah, okay. And she would do her song, The Rain in Spain. And at one point, Rex Harrison, who was a bit of a ham... After she finished it, just as she sang her last note, yelled out, exactly. And she was mad. She was like, hang on, this is my song, not yours. And they fought about it. And every night she'd say, don't do it. And every night. (laughs) (laughs) But that's an invitation, right? (laughs) Hey, Rex, lay off, man. Okay, yeah, for sure. I promise, I promise. (laughs) Now, you know what? This, oh, you're going to be bowing at the segue that I'm going to do. Speaking of things that you maybe shouldn't do. (laughs) that's what we're going to deal with next. And we're going to head to July 29th, 1966. And maybe something that he shouldn't have done, even though he was innocent in my opinion, but we're going to be talking about John Lennon. So we'll be right back. So, Aaron, you recently saw the Dixie Chicks. I guess they're called the Chicks now, right? Yes, I did. Mm -hmm. Now, imagine, do you remember when they got in hot water for ripping on uh, President Bush and the Iraq War? Do you remember that? Sure do. Yeah. Big favorite story. Yeah. Well, this, though, 
Imagine that times 10 or times 100. And this is July 29th, 1966 here in Los Angeles. Something that John Lennon had actually said in an interview quite a while before this, but caught up with him in the States and just created a massive uproar. So what was going on? So John had a friend named Maureen Cleave, and she was a, a writer for a, 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 a newspaper in England. And he was reading a lot of books about Christianity, uh, the Passover plot, which I've read. And he said, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right, and I will be proved right. We're more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. Jesus was all right, but his disciples were were thick and ordinary. It's them twisting it that ruins it for me. I mean, he's not wrong, right? No, no. And and those are just observational comments on his part. Well, and it's funny because he's right. Christianity is shrinking right now, right? Yeah, absolutely. And the Beatles aren't. I mean, the Beatles, Paul McCartney just sold out a tour in the U.S., 10 dates in five minutes, right? Yeah, you know that these comments we're saying are going to come back in a few months and we're going to be have uh, people, how do you like burn a podcast? I don't know. How do you do that? They're going to burn their um, cell phones. Oh, okay. <laughs> go ahead, folks. <laughs> they're going to they're gonna be down there and they're going to go, we're burning our iPhone because we don't like what you said, Badgley. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't disagree with you at all. But, uh, you know, John said the comment and the Brits didn't seem to have a problem with it. The Brits didn't care. The Brits, the Brits literally rolled their eyes and went, oh, it's just John being John, right? Yeah. It, it, it wasn't... It wasn't seen as as sacrilegious or a personal attack or comparing himself to Jesus. It was, at that time, Christianity's the attendance in church was shrinking. And Lenin went on to explain, and he said at one point, if I had said TV, he would have gotten away with it. He would have. If he had said, you know, gun smoke is more popular. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, um, but he said Beatles, and it, it just, and I... I just want to call people up and go, hey, you know that book you're burning? Did you know that in like 10 years' time, they would be selling for like $700? <laughs> yeah. But you look at the time period, too, when John Lennon said that, right? One of the most tumultuous decades in modern history. Think of a time when more change happened in such a short time. Uh, can you think of one? No. No. And look at the Beatles. I mean, 1964... A Hard Day's Night. Yeah. Two years, almost to the day, they're releasing Paperback Writer and Revolver, Eleanor Rigby, Tomorrow Never Knows. Who saw that coming? I mean, that was it was the times. Everything was changing. Yeah. Right? At breakneck so, speed. And, yeah. and you're yeah. exactly right that the Beatles, you can almost hold them up as a mirror for, for what was going on in society. And uh, they certainly were drivers behind it, but it was just all this stuff going on and, and the civil rights movement going on and an unbelievable decade of change. And we went from, it almost seemed like at the start of the sixties, still like the fifties, almost, you know, this, this trust in institutions and, and, and by the end of the decade, boy, society had done a complete 180. Well, you know, and it, it, it was, you could argue part of the reason was it was spearheaded by rock and roll. Well, without question. Um, you know, I had a colleague, uh, back when I was teaching, and she would tell her history class that, you know, rock and roll 
might have been one of the most important developments in the 20th century from a historical point of view. And, and the kids would never believe her. And she would always call me in as a guest and I'd come in and talk about it. And we'd talk about how it spurred on all these things, you know, uh, including the civil rights movement and including questioning authority, uh, all the changes that happened in society. I mean, it was huge. Look at Bob Dylan marching arm in arm with Martin Luther King, right? Singing Blowing in the Wind. I'm not saying that those things wouldn't have happened without Dylan being there, but it certainly was the impetus to get up and do things. Look at Woodstock. Look at all the stuff. Rock and roll, even in the 50s. Um, Alan Freed, right? So all that stuff as kind of came up. And Lennon was just, I think, talking sense, personally. Yeah, he was speaking from his generation's point of view, right? And and we're talking tail end of the 60s here. And But he got, boy, they got in hot water over that. And um, like time. like I said, that's the Dixie Chicks times what a hundred thousand? I don't know. I, I still think that one story. If you watch their documentary on their tour, during the tour they they're on stage in Memphis, and someone throws a firecracker on stage, and you can literally see the film footage of each Beatle looking to see which one was shot. Were you shot? Oh. <laughs> you know, they were scared. They were terrified. Right. So. And I think this had a, a tremendous amount to do, of course, with the decision to, we're, we're done. No more live shows. No more. Well, I mean, between that and the Philippines, right? Yeah. Yeah, which is, I mean, we could devote a whole episode to that. In fact, I think when that comes up, uh, whatever week that was, we should uh, explore that further because that's crazy, even by today's standards. Like, that, that is insane. insane. That was just nuts. I'm sorry. There was no excuse for that at all. <laughs> you know, terrifying. And uh, every time I read about that and I learn more about that, I think, oh, oh my goodness, that that's just over the top crazy. Oh, well, it was a bit extreme, right? In my opinion. Anyway. So, yeah, this was a big time for John Lennon, his, his famous statement that, um, did you know that his music was banned in South Africa until 1980 because of that comment? You know, that, that wouldn't surprise me because they would have considered his comments to be dangerous, right? Those are anti-authority comments. Yeah. So crazy, crazy, crazy times, folks. Crazy times. But he's he survived. And the Beatles bounced back with the number one album that summer and big tour. <laughs> but you know what, what always alarms me about that is, is you look at the footage of how willing people were, especially in the South, to, to go to album-burning parties and stuff and uh, it's just crazy yeah insane and it, it, it talk about um what's that term it's when you're kind of brought into the mass you know just craziness yeah i, I mean the mob mentality i guess takes over and mob mentality that's the term that was the term yes okay, yes, yes, yeah. yes yeah uh, what a what a chapter in history and you know um john of course then was a lot of pressure was put in, put on him to apologize and he didn't think he had anything to apologize for but then he kind of issued a statement meant to clarify and got himself in more hot water didn't he he did and if you look at the comments he never said i'm sorry for saying what i said he said i'm sorry it was taken the wrong way exactly which, which I, I thought that's you know have you are you a fan of the ruddles oh yeah yeah well you got me onto those guys and it's hilarious <laughs> Because in the Ruddles, when he makes the famous God statement, he goes, the answer is, I wasn't saying we're bigger than God. I was saying bigger than Rod, Rod Stewart, who hasn't had a hit yet. <laughs> <laughs> nice. 
<laughs> Bigger than Rod. <laughs> All right. So we are, oh, you know what? It is time, isn't it? All for the charts here. And we are. Yes. I, I had the top ten, five British singles because I thought that would be kind of cool seeing what was going on. Is that okay? Yeah, that is great. So what was going on in 66 here? Gene Pitney, who was long past his prime in America, was at number five with Nobody Needs Your Love. Number four, River Deep, Mountain High, Ike and Tina Turner. Number three, Chris Farlow, Out of Time. Number two, I love the song, The Kinks, Sunny Afternoon. And number one, Georgie Fame with Getaway. Wow, that's an interesting chart. Now, what do you say? Uh, we've got one more story to do, our Memphis to Merseyside moment. So what do you say we talk a little Elvis Presley this week? But you said there's a Beatles connection here too. To the, to the Elvis? Yeah. Always a Beatle connection to Elvis. <laughs> so folks, we will be right back with our From Memphis to Merseyside moment. So we're here on July 31st, 1969, and this is an important moment for Elvis Presley. He makes his four debut of a four-week run at the new, brand spanking new, Las Vegas International Hotel. This was also his first live show since 1961. Other, well, the comeback special, but that was recorded. But he made about they said for this little residency about one and a half million dollars which is a lot of coin back then um but in the film they really talk in the new biopic about elvis they really talk about what was going on behind the scenes how you know what happened to make elvis be in los angeles and elvis of course wanted to tour but um Colonel Tom Parker, spoiler alert here, had some serious gambling debts and uh, he figured booking Elvis into Los Angeles, uh, you know, of course would be a, a big opportunity for Elvis, but a big opportunity for him to pay off his debts. So kind of sad at the same time. Yeah, terribly sad. It's just one of those, again, you shake. But the performances were pretty cool. And the Beatle connection was that Ringo Starr was on hand for the concerts because Ringo was a big Elvis fan, along with Mal Evans. And this was a chance for Ringo to get Mal to meet Elvis Presley. And they met backstage after a show. And, you know, on opening night, because I've seen a lot of footage of this on opening night, uh, July 31st, 1969, everybody was there in the audience. Like everybody yeah. wanted to see Elvis Presley to see what was going on. You name uh, a celebrity, whether it be musician, actor, whoever, they were in the audience and wondering did this guy still have it or not or was he washed up and of course we now know the answer elvis knocked it out of the park and in fact i would argue this period in vegas is he's at the height and the peak of his powers no argument here you're not getting an argument from me hey speaking of vegas and residency did you see who's just signed on for a residency in vegas i did not who's who's up you too oh really at, a, at the new Madison Square Garden in Vegas. No kidding. For how long is it? A, is it a big, uh, um, big gig? They're, yeah, they're doing. I think they're doing a year. Wow. Over a they're, they're going to do over a year. They're doing two or three months. That's called the MSG Sphere, which will open with you two. 
And you know, it, for those who don't know what goes on behind the scenes on these Los Angeles uh, or Las Vegas, sorry, residencies, I mean, there is just such big money being thrown around, oh, right? Huge. Look huge. at how much, uh, what's her name? Celine Dion. Remember she did a residence and, and they were talking about the obnoxious amounts of money that she was being offered for that. Elton John had a residency there. Share. Uh, yeah, share. So it, it is big money and a totally different animal, you know, doing the same show day in, day out. But I guess, I wow, I'm surprised that you 2 is doing that. Well, you know, I'm not because it, you know what? None of these bands would have done it if Elvis hadn't done it first. That's true. Because before That's Elvis, true. it was all Sammy Davis and Sinatra and Buddy Hackett doing bad comedy, you know. But it was Elvis who kind of said, you know, we can do this. And I mean, there's been Britney Spears and um, Lady Gaga. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's an opportunity for, to perform and not have to tour. That's true. And if it's, imagine it's the same for you too, but when Elvis uh, kicked off his show, his uh, string of shows at the uh, international, I mean, he had unlimited resources on stage, right? He could do whatever he wanted. And it was in the contract that the international was paying for it. So he had a 30 piece orchestra on stage. He had his band on stage. Incredible, incredible. So I'm not overly surprised that you two are doing it. I think I could, I, I get it. I do. I understand. Yeah. I, I'm, I wonder what kind of show they're going to do, whether, you know, are, are they writing a whole bunch of new material for this as well? Yep. They have a new album coming out and I'm actually next year tempted to go down to Vegas and see you two and the Beatles love again. So I might, you never know. We should do it. We should do it. Yeah. You know what? I, I've never been, so I'd love to okay, go down okay. and check you, it out. We'll talk. We'll, we'll talk. We should go together. Yeah. Uh, I'm not a gambler at all, but I'd, I think I'd love I to gamble. see you too. Yeah. And you would love to see love by the Beatles. It you, just for the sound. You yeah. Love it. You know what? I have that album, the original uh, soundtrack album from the Cirque du Soleil show. And yeah. have you ever read the, did you read the notes for that album? I did. Yeah, 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 yeah. I love when they talk about how they said John Lennon probably would have loved it because of the way that he liked to play around with the studio. Because on the Love album, they do all kinds of things with the songs, right? Don't they play? Which song is it that they actually play backwards on there? Is it Because. Oh, yeah. Because. Yeah. And the way that they treat Glass Onion and Sun King and stuff. It's fantastic. I love that My favorite is their their version of uh, Lady Madonna. Yeah, it is a wonderful album. Um, yeah. And so there's going to be another one. Oh, that's amazing. So let's let's do both next year, okay? Yeah, I think that would be incredible. Okay, I'm on. Yeah, so a real road trip instead of a virtual one, that would be fantastic. We'll record live in Vegas. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so all those people who burned their phones after our comments earlier will just have to get a new listening device. Damn straight. <laughs> And guess what, folks? We're at the end of our road trip. But as always, our music has been provided by Rick Denis. And we, we say it every week because we mean it. We are so grateful to you, our listeners. And we're so grateful that you help spread the word. And let's face it, if uh, if we weren't doing something good, I don't think we'd be recording episode 63 right now, do you? No, 100%. So we are inching closer to episode number 75 keep on listening folks and keep on sharing and uh, Aaron we were beset by technical gremlins this week but we made it through this recording session for our virtual road trip and 
it's been a lot of fun. It's been one of our best. I look forward to this every week, Tony. Every single week, I look forward to doing this chat. Yeah, me too. So until next time, folks, if the man is getting you down, Aaron, what do you do? Just keep on rocking, because that's basically it. See you next time.